Welcome to No Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbon on Twitter, and I have with me today Satan, the Great Deceiver. Uh, I've developed a wonderful way to entomb your child. Very cool. Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbon on Twitter, and I have with me today, uh, you know him by many names, uh, Satan the Great Deceiver. Uh, <laughs> uh, just kidding, I couldn't get him. But I did get, uh, you know him from Twitter as Illy Boshin, you know him from the Bunta Vista podcast as Andrew. Uh, we're here with Andrew. Hello. Hey, it's nice to be back. It's been a while. It's it has been a little while. I think I've had, I think you were one of my first multiple guests, and then we, we took a little bit of a break. Um, not because you weren't a good guest, but because I find it is uh, very difficult to bridge uh, our uh, time difference. Uh, That's true. If you, uh, yeah, if you like, it was easier with like Theo when I had him on because um, Theo was just like at school, so it could be on any time. Um, but. We both have lives uh, that aren't just academic lives, which, I mean, I'm sure we both have mixed feelings about. Uh, so it, it becomes a little more difficult to, to, to figure it out, but I'm glad we did. Yep, and as the, as the seasons change as well, the overlap in time zones sometimes gets more and more exaggerated. It's Turns absurd these, that... Yeah, who, so, who, wants, who wants to start the show at 6 a.m. and who wants to start it at 11.30 p.m., you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, this, this is why, this is what, I mean, this is the answer to, we've seen many threads about it speculating all sorts of reasons why, but this is the real reason why there are so few um, Australian-American like, uh, crossovers in terms of hosts on regular podcasts. Uh, it doesn't have to do with toxic masculinity, as everyone would have you believe, nope. um, lar largely due to time zones. Just a little ma toxic masculinity, but just a touch, just a just touch a of that. Uh, you know, which which country has the more which country has the more powerful forms of racism, <laughs> all that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's always it's always exciting to see who's pulling ahead at any given time. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's really nice to have you back. Um, and uh, the topic that you want to talk about today is is near and dear to my heart. But uh, before we get to that, uh, I want to ask you how you've been. How are you doing? What's new? What's uh, what's going on? I I will say some someone recently told me um, who someone who started talking to me online because they liked my podcast. Uh, we were chatting and and he told me that uh, uh, he gets all of his U.S. news from Bunta Vista. Uh, so <laughs> you're you're doing and he lives in the U.S. So you're doing good work. Um, yeah, I think uh, we, I all, think we all, kind all of stopped. The globe. We just we just gave up on Australian news. I think. Although, I mean, you know, really, it's it's not my place to come on an American podcast and talk, start talking about the news being depressing. Uh, <laughs> that's that's not really what anybody it needs. It's <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I've I've been the last year was weird for everybody, and mm -hmm. uh, this year's off to a great start. Yeah, yep. Uh, although, I mean, obviously, as things have kind of shaken out, uh, Australia has turned out to be very, very lucky in how we've sort of dealt with uh with all the pandemic related stuff uh i live in a city where there's just no cases and they haven't been for ages or there will be like oh. 
there'll be like one case every four months where it's like some old idiot came back from a diplomatic post and we shoved him in a hotel <laughs> and that kind of thing so you know like all, all of the sort of internal politics here are, are about like um where there are little little breakouts and then they'll have a oh, they'll have a lockdown great. and say oh everybody's got to stay inside for a week uh you know everybody put your masks on stay away from each other don't go to the gym that sort of thing for a week uh, and then it goes away, and all of the debate is around like, oh, are they are they going too hard? Are they going not too hard enough? All that kind of <laughs> thing. But then the second you like, I mean, from my perspective anyway. Uh, granted, I have not been going through like the situation that my brother and his family had in Melbourne, where they had much longer sustained lockdowns, and he's got like two little kids as well, and you just stuck inside with him you can't take him to the playground uh Ugh. you kind of kind of can't do anything with his hit with oh, his it's a nightmare know, yeah his like so eight, 18 month and, and five-year-old kids kind of thing um and you gotta do Ugh. gotta teach him at home and all that sort of stuff um so granted you know i hadn't been through all that but as soon as you kind of zoom out and you say uh australia currently has 40 known cases of covid in the whole country oh my god yeah, like it, it's a, it kind of makes you go. I think I think the sacrifices are worth it. Um, yeah, well, large. we can. I can go to an Applebee's whatever I want, and all it's taken is five hundred thousand right. dead people. So freedom, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, um, that's sweet. For, I mean, obviously, that's an entire other discussion and debate about the entire sort of. Oh, like as as a weird aside, I saw a picture on Twitter uh, yesterday that made me uh, just bummed out because that's what Twitter's for. Yeah, you and... got to. Well, yeah, you only go on there if you want to be very depressed. Yep. And, and Andrews only tweet like this when they're very depressed. That's right. And uh, it was a picture of a guy showing off his design for like a like a, a self enclosing ballistic school desk. Oh, I saw that too. Yeah. And just like standing by it as if he was showing you like a pumpkin he grew. Yeah. Like a, a very a very yeah. sort of like blase kind of pride to him. Not smiling, just like, mm. you know, job well done. I've developed a wonderful way to entomb your child. And <laughs> very cool. Yeah, and like uh, you know, it's a, it's a similar sort of argument with that sort of stuff where it's like you have people who are so fixated on the freedom of uh owning a lot of guns and guns being a very pervasive part of your society. And in reality, all of the things that you are trading away are everybody else's freedom to not feel like they're about to get shot at school all the time, to not have to have a desk which they can lock themselves into. <laughs> if it's any if it's any consolation, there's almost no chance those desks will take off because we don't fund the schools here very well. Yes, yes. Well, that was the, that's the first comment I saw on that post was somebody being like, teachers are still paying for like the pencils out of their own funds. I don't think we're getting the desks. I don't think we're getting the, the murder-proof desks anytime soon. Although I will say the one thing you can get school boards to spend on is stuff like that. Like our school board is um, where my where my children go to school is uh, or my, my daughter. My, my son doesn't go to school yet, but uh, is just like it's terrible. It's a very bad school board. Like a lot of them were big Trump people and they got in during the Trump times. And it's very hard to get people unelected from a school board in a uh, in a weird, you know, right wing uh, exurb. But um as a result, like, it, it, you know, 
all the stuff that you would love to see in a school gets axed. Like uh, psychological support got axed. You you know can't have counsel. You can't like have like you know a bunch of dedicated counseling sessions. We can't have. You know, the idea of, like, new textbooks got axed, like, new history textbooks got mysteriously vetoed, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but the one thing that did get support and funding was um, a huge, like, monster uh, metal detector that cost a million dollars to install at the high school. Oh, cool. So you can <laughs> definitely get people interested in a, uh, a real weird, like... Verhoeven-esque security state in America. We love that stuff. But you can't talk to anybody about how it makes you feel. No, that's that's that's, that's <laughs> lame none and of bad. That. None of that. That's not a Verhoeven. That's a different movie that I don't want to watch. Um, <laughs> yeah. So no, it's it is weird. It's um, I mean, yeah. It's I, I, I'm I'm I will say this, and and this is this is how I try to live my life, and I don't always succeed, but I do succeed in this sense. I am happy for my Australian friends that things are going well. I think that's great. Thank you. Um, one of the few things we have to brag about. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm getting I'm getting my second shot next week, so I get to I oh. uh, I get to uh, um, and I I don't know if you saw this, but I'm getting it because I was overweight at my physical. So being fat has uh has saved me from the deadly disease known as COVID. <laughs> all but, go, uh, all going according to plan. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. So the the best comment I got on that tweet was someone saying I've been training my whole life for this. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so I'll, soon I'll be also immune. But the um, I, I assume that's how this works. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's. Um, I feel like I feel like that is a wonderful, wonderful element to your society that uh, everyone, despite how spread out they often are, are able to sort of agree. Like, okay, let's just let's just quarantine at this point. That's great. Yeah, and of course, there's you know people who are psychos about it, as there are in any community. Um, <laughs> but but they're not sure. sort of. But uh, but I think they don't know, run the country is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, I think we do have our own issues with like um, uh, distrust of authority and that sort of uh, slow foxification of news and all that sort of thing. But like I, I often sort of point to Australia's media landscape as being, uh, you know, several decades behind the US and, and other countries. <laughs> nice. It's like when you when you look at, at sort of the difference between things like how advertising works and all that sort of stuff, it just it makes us look very provincial, you know. And this is one of the times when that's a good thing. Yes. Uh, but it also conversely, I think uh, us having the ability to avoid the worst of this stuff also has the kind of negative effect of allowing us to just sort of say ah, we're doing better than some other countries in the world, so it's time to stop doing any form of self-examination <laughs> and just keep on trucking. You know? No looking at any that, of those problems we have. That does seem to be the thing that happens, especially with you, your country and New Zealand, where they'll, where they'll say, like, we're doing great on COVID, and someone will say, well, can we address how bad we are to uh, Aboriginal peoples and, and say, like, do you like, see our COVID yep, stats? no cases of COVID, right? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. But um but the but, but, Yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, so yeah, I was going to say the I did find myself uh gaming a bit more last year and then Look at, at this, we had the exact same segue. There you go. This is this, maybe, maybe we should start a podcast. I'll get up at 6 a.m. every morning. When you I, stay up till 11:30. When when showrunners unite, you know. <laughs> so um so we also at Christmas time, we got our kids a switch for Christmas. Great. Um because well and and part of the reasoning for this was that um like my kids are interested in playing video games 
uh, and I put a stop to that immediately. <laughs> my, my, <Good>. kids, <laughs> my kids are my kids are like interested in playing video games, but I the only other thing I had in the house I don't have like a PC or anything. The only other thing I had in the house is a PS4 Pro, and I really, really, genuinely found it really hard to find games that were anything approaching like age appropriate or games that you could kind of give to a kid and and have them like have a have a hope of playing just because yeah yeah. like like it's i think it's probably the the first time in many 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 years that i had actually been made to give any consideration of that idea for who the target markets of different consoles are um because you know ps4 and xbox are very much that kind of they they are in the realms now of of we are making, uh, you know, gaming PCs for mass production and for you to put in your lounge room. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and like, you know, they're they're just as much gaming PCs, and I think that's like a very good way of thinking about like the PS Five and the Xbox, the new Xbox Series X. Um, but like, they're also, and I, I've talked about this on the show, but it's like it bears repeating. They are also just like media centers, like that. Yeah, they're, they're like it's it's not it's not always about the game. It's like you could buy an Xbox or a PlayStation even if you've never planned a game. Like they're sort of like a little media box that's a little HD streaming, etc. That you can have. Yeah, I mean, I was reading something a while ago that was talking about um, for the new models of the Xbox that it was kind of the pivot away from that vision that they had with um, the Xbox One that was supposed to be the this is the thing you have in your living room um, that you will stream all your entertainment on and you can have your your media server running through and you'll listen to your music on it and play games and all that sort of thing. Um, But that they had said that didn't quite work out how we wanted as far as taking over the the living room space kind of thing. Um, And so they were, you know, pivoting even harder to we just want a very, very high-powered gaming PC in a shell uh, that you can just buy off the shelf, and that's interesting because it, it, you know, that, like it, it makes a lot of sense considering I hadn't I hadn't heard that, but it, it totally makes sense given the way that um, you know, given the way that the um, the PlayStation and the uh, or the play, sorry the PlayStation Four and the PS4 Pro, uh, like the introduction of the PS4 Pro really was that turn to like okay, like let's cut the nonsense. We just got to make a really powerful machine. Yeah, and and you know I've always I've always been a um, defender of the console in that sense. In that I am not a person who has the the money, the time, or the inclination to build a gaming PC, uh, to maintain it, to upgrade it, any of those sorts of things. I think that for people like myself, uh, the idea that you can spend I don't know. To, to pluck a number from the air of what I would have paid for something in the past. I don't know how much any of the new consoles are. But, oh, you know, boy. Pay, you know, Exciting to hear this number. Paying, paying like five or six hundred Australian dollars to have a console and some controllers and a, and a game or two. And then, like, that sets you up for a cycle of a console, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, compared to, I... I you know, I maxed out a gaming rig and then two years later, there's something that I can't play on maxed out settings and do I want to get another video card, all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't have the time for it. Uh, I don't have the inclination, all that sort of thing. So yeah, that's fair. Th- that and you, you also just, 
you know, the, the nature of that model of business is that you could not build a gaming PC. Um, like, I, I don't think anyway that you could build a, an, a gaming PC, like an entry-level one, for as little money as you could just buy a PS4 or a PS5 or whatever. Probably not. I, uh, yeah, it might be getting be closer. Hard, you'd be hard-pressed. And, it's getting and, closer and closer. And you would be doing it in that way of what what is the, you know, you would be working on it in the sense of what is the absolute least amount of money I could pay to get a game well, that the yeah. games to get a PC that games will be playable on, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you truly if you truly bargain basemented it, you could probably get a PC for you know four hundred dollars that could play most of the games that you'd want to play, um, on like you know acceptable but not great settings. Um, I know, like I got my PC when I graduated when I got my PhD, which was like four years ago now, and it's still it was top of the line then. It still plays most like most everything at max settings now, but. You know, like that was I don't remember what that was, but I think like typically you you know, for for a PC that'll last you the same amount of time as a console would, you're gonna pay a thousand bucks. Yeah, and I'm sure that this is also a thing where the old the classic Australia tax affects things in terms of <laughs> I've heard uh, about the Australia tax. Yep, just in terms of componentry and uh software and shipping and all that sort of stuff, all just costing more. And then we're getting. Looks stung like you'd them. like to purchase something. Be a shame if oh. it costs you an inordinate <laughs> amount of money. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I was I was definitely struggling with the PS4 to find games that my kids could play. My kids were playing. Um, one of them liked to to play like I've I've got one of those like Mega Drive collection things. You oh, know? fun! Yeah. So you know they'll get on there and like play Sonic, play Streets of Rage, stuff like that. Um, but that's but that's kind of it as far as just a game where it's like oh you press the stick to go in the direction you want to go in and you press one of these two buttons to make something happen you know yeah and like it's interesting that you say that because like you know we talk about games that are sort of throwback games or games that like speak to that era or whatever but almost none of them are that simple right like almost all of them are not like press stick forward uh press a press b like even something like cuphead has several little buttons you can press on the sides and stuff. It's not legitimately a Sonic level simplicity. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we, we went around to our neighbor's house because uh, they have a kid that's the same age as our kids. Went around there and they were all playing Mario Kart together on the Switch and loving it and they could just all play it. And we went, huh, maybe we <laughs> should maybe we should get them uh, a thing with with games that are designed for kids to be able to play them you know cuz nintendo as we know is is much more kind of has always been much more family oriented as a company yeah. than than trying to put out you know the most mature games uh that can and yeah so we we got them that for christmas and uh we got um got like the bundle with mario kart and they've been playing that and really enjoying it. Nice. And like if so so the last time that I was on, I feel like the thing that we were talking about was me sort of talking about uh the the type of games that were open to me as somebody with like a full-time job and little kids and all that sort of stuff that I had really kind of lost the ability to to play like a large narrative game from end to end. Yeah, we were talking about how, like, uh, I think the game we were talking about was Dying Light, which, like, has a lot of little, like, you know, oh, I did this. It took, like, 20 minutes, and then I turned off the 
the thing or like I can sit down and turn turn this on, turn this off. Yeah, and and mainly the things that I had been playing a lot for the last couple of years were just like the uh, the the Call of Duty or Black Ops game for that year, you know, because I could pay for one game and then you can pick it up and play it for an hour and put it back down. You just drop into multiplayer matches. Uh, there is no need for you to kind of come back to it and remember where you were at in the story yeah. uh, or any of that kind of thing because that that was always an issue for me as well in the past of playing like uh, longer form narrative games. Well, you played, uh, do I recall right that you played uh, Death Stranding? <laughs> yes, so, uh, no, sorry, uh, Metal Gear Solid Five. So Ah, uh, that would be the one, yeah, okay, okay. So I, I made a little list here of games that I have been playing recently. Um, and <laughs> and how they are different than Metal Gear Solid Five. Well, and and what it is about where I guess the commonalities are in the ones that have have really sort of captured my attention because I have been finding over the last say year or so, maybe six months to a year, that I have been getting back into games in a way that I haven't been in a long time. Um, so I played uh, the PS4 Spider Man game. Uh, which I really enjoyed as somebody who likes, you know, open world games. Uh, I I really liked the prototype games. Mm, uh, I, yeah, I haven't thought about them in a while. They are neat. Yeah, and they they had that really good, uh, really good sense of, you know, being a very powerful character flying around in an environment, tossing tanks and doing all kinds of fun stuff. And I Naturally. think the the Spider Man. Want. Yeah. The Spider-Man game did a did a very good job of that, but it also kind of it it did kind of scratch that part of my brain that makes me go, oh, I'm going to do 100 percent of the side missions in this game. <laughs> a very dangerous part of anyone's brain, I yeah. have to say. Uh, I played uh, Uncharted Four because that was on the you know the free PS4 games, uh, the PlayStation Network thing, PS Plus. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, that was on PS Plus. Please, please use the correct branding on this show. Where I'm that's right. That's sued. Right. Um, and like I, f- I found I couldn't really get into that because it's like so dialogue and exposition and story heavy. <laughs> uh, it's like right? it, every every scene that you're going through, the characters are like dumping exposition on you the whole time through everything that's happening, and I, I just I couldn't click into that really. Uh, yeah, I did. Well, play- and I mean, like, like a game like Spider-Man, you at least like you have. I mean, this is the benefit. I remember playing the Arkham City games on the Arkham Asylum, and then City games. When like I was, I don't. I, it was before kids, but it was before. I also, I was like back into playing video games. Like I just played them, like in a weird period of my life where I wasn't playing a lot of games, but I still kind of like like the idea of playing games. And I remember liking them because, like, I know who Batman is. Like, I I yeah. understand that the arc of this character, in the same way you understand the arc of Spider-Man, like, regardless of what the specific story is, it doesn't really matter. Like, I'll, I'll be fine. Like, I can figure this out. And, yeah, that's, that's something that I appreciated about both the Spider-Man video game and the, the most recent um, Spider-Man movies, mm. like the, the Marvel ones, is... And and this is like such a low bar of things for me to be really impressed by. But I was extremely impressed that they made a Spider-Man movie where they did not feel the need to tell me what this Spider-Man guy's deal is. Honestly, like I haven't seen any of them. And part of the reason I, I got like completely 
burnt out on superhero movies was the origin stories. I was just so sick of the origin stories. They're like the worst part of any of those movies. Well, it's like, you know, they when they restarted them with the Andrew Garfield ones because Sony just wanted to keep the rights going and they just <laughs> needed to bang out some more and they went, oh, time to do the becoming Spider-Man thing again. You're like, uh, we know who he is. Like, you, <laughs> just like, I don't need to see Uncle Ben die again. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's fine. I know he does. Let me introduce you to a little guy called Superman. Like it's, it's fine. It's fine. These characters have been around for a hundred years. We all know all about them. If you Someone don't come know... again, oh, Superman. I guess this is about some sort of man who's uh, superlative in some way. Yeah. Very excited to see where this goes. But yeah, like, uh, and and I guess the the other sort of commonality with things like the Spider-Man game, the Arkham games, and stuff like that is that. Um, you you can choose when you want to sort of drop in and out of the main storyline of those games, right? You can say, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna progress that sort of main story thing," or I'm gonna pop off and do some of the side stuff that I find enjoyable. Both of them had that same kind of focus on, I guess, getting more and more comfortable with like the um, the mechanics of the the character themselves, so that you kind of become more and more powerful as the game progresses you can do longer and longer like combos and chain a whole bunch of different stuff together which i think all goes very hand in hand with what to me should be the aim of a game like that which is making you feel like you're you're piloting a superhero you know yeah makes plenty of sense um i did just getting like getting even more like powerful as the superhero gets powerful where like you know you, you sort of get like that sense of I don't know, like the stories in the early parts of any of those heroes or their reboots or whatever, where it's like, oh, this guy, like now he's learning to be Spider-Man. Like he's he's really getting the hang of this. Yeah. Um, I did play Cuphead. Wonderful game. Uh, very proud to say that I killed the devil himself. Oh, very good. See, I didn't find Cuphead as hard as everyone else. Uh, and that's not bragging. I'm not especially good at video games, but I guess I'm pretty good at what Cuphead does. Um, yeah, on, yeah. On the other hand, like I, so like I, I'm impressed you did it, but also there are a lot of people who are just like very much talk about Cuphead as if it's a game that I did not play. That is just like punishing hardest the game I in the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, and I think that that's probably something that might be attributable to like a particular type of brain in the sense that when I was playing that game, it sort of it scratched something uh, in my brain that that I guess worked for me in the sense that to me, the game is about like pattern recognition and, and learning yeah. routines of things that are happening, you know, and like getting the rhythms of a thing down right to the point where you can just kind of step through it. Um, whereas like I've, there's a whole lot of like shooter kind of games, like even all of the old sort of R type kind of things um, that I was like, never, never good at those games. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think part of the reason is that those games are just long levels where different stuff's kind of happening all the time. And I'm sure if you play the same levels over and over again... You memorize will, them. Yeah, yeah, there will be things that you memorize and patterns and everything, but Cuphead was so much more of a condensed version of that. Yeah, um, right. It was, it, was all the, it was all the parts you get to at the end of those games where it's like, uh, oh, there's this big crazy boss and I have to figure out how he works. Yeah. Um, and like Cuphead's just that, yeah. So yeah, um, I I I think maybe maybe this will be a, a theme for some of the other games I'm going to talk about. But there's you know only the loosest frame of a story. 
You know? Very nice. You, yeah. hey, the devil did something, and you gotta you gotta beat some guys. And then at the end, the devil will be like, ah, and that's about the extent. Mugman and Cuphead did that. <laughs> yeah, darn it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dang. <laughs> well, I guess you win, Cuphead. Uh, whereas, like, yeah, I. So, so there was a like sale on the PlayStation Store thing, and they had uh, Metal Gear Solid, uh, the Phantom Pain, and Ground Zeroes like bundled for several dollars. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was a cup of coffee kind of price, and I went fine. Maybe I'll give one of these Metal Gear Solid games a go again. Um, I I have been on the record on this show before, saying that like there are. Uh, Particularly, I think a lot of a lot of Japanese games where I really struggle to kind of connect with the story. Uh, I struggle to connect with like the things that are prioritized as part of the experience about the games, that sort of stuff. And this was not any different for me. I <laughs> I started playing the game and was immediately confronted with like a ten to fifteen minute long uh, expository dialogue cutscene. Naturally, yeah. You gotta gotta learn what Skullface is up to. Yep. Uh, then I uh, got dumped into a military base that I had to sneak into. Remembered that I hate stealth games. Then uh, find them very frustrating. Uh, got caught a bunch of times. Continued to be frustrated. I said, "Fuck it! I'm just I'm gonna restart this mission." And I restarted it, and it put me back to the start of the cutscene. And I went, <laughs> "Fuck this!" That's so and rude. Turned it off. <laughs> so brutal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah i was like no it's it's still it's not for me it's not for me um tony hawk's pro skater one and two i play that sounds like something that would be for you now so again thematically zero story uh concern on nothing other than uh like gameplay mechanics and yeah the main just, the main the main story in that is can you do a mcnasty 360 yeah. hey can you get to that Letter T up there. <laughs> you do it? Yeah. Important character development like that. Ca- character <laughs> development like what shoes are you wearing? <laughs> now, do they still have Ryan Dunn in the game? I'm, I'm assuming not. They do not. R.I.P. Ah, yeah. Oh. So, um, they should have kept him in. It's just, he just like, uh, yeah, anyway. So that was, that was very enjoyable to me. And the level to which I enjoyed... Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 and Mario Kart and Super Mario Odyssey did cause me to start doing a bit of self-examination and saying, how much of this is like nostalgia-based? How much of this is me going, ah, this is a game that I played a bunch when I was like 18 or whatever. You know? Right. Yeah. How, however old I was when the Tony Hawk games were around. Um, you know, how much of it is me just going, oh, this is the thing I remember liking. Uh, and in the case of like um, Mario Kart and Mario Odyssey, which are games that I've been playing on the Switch and really enjoying, I I think that it's kind of impossible to divorce like some factor of nostalgia from enjoyment of the thing because so much of the games are so identical to all of the previous versions of the games. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was. It was. It was. Um... I mean, familiarity breeds like a, a sort of um, a sort of love there. Yeah, I mean, like um, you know, part of the reason I wanted to get Odyssey was because I remembered how much I loved uh, Super Mario Galaxy on the Wii. 
um, which was a, a very, very enjoyable, you know, 3D platforming experience. Now, did you get did you get the new Super Mario bundle for the for the Switch so your so your kids can experience that? Uh, I have not yet. I ah, see. It has. It has. Uh, it has the Galaxy. Well, this is this is a thing that's been interesting to me about the Nintendo model generally because, like, on one hand, I'm here to very staunchly defend uh, some of the games that they've been making as incredibly enjoyable, and at the same time, even like the what, the Nintendo Direct conference thing yesterday, where they were like announcing games and they're just like remaster of an old game, remaster of an old game. Here's another <laughs> right. remaster of an old game. And, uh, like, I, I think I wasn't sure if, like, um, is, is Odyssey a game that only came out on the Switch? Yes. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, you can buy that pack of, like, uh, you know, the remasters or, or whatever they are of Super Mario 64, um, Super Mario Galaxy, and Super Mario Sunshine. Sunshine, yeah. But it does cost 80 Australian dollars. Is. Can I ask? Can I ask a question that's going to seem rude? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, uh, what's with that terrible hat? No, just, I, um, <laughs> what? Uh, do you have to call them Australian dollars at home? Obviously, there's a reason you're doing it here, which I get. But like, do you say this costs eighty dollars, or do you always have to say this costs eighty Australian dollars? Oh no! So only ever in the context of like posting something on the internet that I okay, say good, like AUD. It seems so like unreasonable that you would have to call them Australian dollars in like your, like a store. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You would Australian. How much does this cost? Well, it costs seven Australian dollars. The worst. <laughs> okay. Kind of I dollars. can afford that. Um, no, I guess, I guess solely. So, uh, you know, if anybody's listening there, don't go, it costs $80 for a game there. Uh, I, d- <laughs> I did look because I was curious as to like whether we're getting stung extremely hard for like switch games or anything, but I think they're they're pretty much, the same in the states they're like yeah well switch games never get cheaper is the thing like you, you probably are getting hurt a lot more on uh on playstation 4 games uh because they go on sale uh but switch games never do yeah whereas like so you know my my stated position on the show in the past has been uh i just don't play games when they're new basically i i wait until several years later when they're like 15 bucks on the on the playstation store or whatever uh, and your children have have absolutely owned you here and made you break your promise. That's right. Well, let's be honest. I bought Mario Odyssey for myself. Ah, <laughs> it comes out. It comes out. It's a wonderful game. It's one of my favorites from the last few years. Honestly, it's a it's a treasure. And and yeah, it's a, it's another game that has definitely scratched the kind of I I want to go back through this entire thing and get every single one of the the power oh, moons. Yeah. Um, much yeah. like getting the 100 stars in uh in super mario 64 but like but again like i was saying i mean if you look at these games the the gameplay mechanics are like identical to what they were in uh like uh mario galaxy it's it's completely the same in terms of how you control the character how you little mario but what about uh, cappy <laughs> well it well, the game with cappy this is what i'm saying they 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 layer things on to all of the original stuff. And as far as the story yeah. is concerned, the story is the story from Donkey Kong. You know? It's, <laughs> That's right. Someone grab Peach, go get Peach. That is the story. That's the entirety of the story. And 
what what I guess really works about that for me is that it means that they're not, they're not trying to do anything with like narrative or story beats or anything like that. And it also means that there's all these things in the game that are like that are nonsensical, right? Now right. you now you are inhabiting the consciousness of a frog. Yeah, no, uh, uh, guess what? You can in, not only that, but you can inhabit the consciousness of a human being. Yes, you have become a zipper. Like uh <laughs> and as I'm playing through these things, all these different things, the the only like logical explanation for any of it is that somebody who's designing the game said, that'd be fun. And it turns out mm. it was. And, and uh, yeah, like, I mean it is it is sort of the New Donk City problem, right? Where like oh and solution, which is like you look at New Donk City and you're like, okay, look, how can New Donk City be a thing? First off, it's monstrous to imagine that Mario is stealing the consciousness of people. Second off, is Mario also a human? None of this makes any sense. And the only real answer, the only solution in New Dog City is, well, it's fun. Yeah, everything in the game exists for the purpose of making the gameplay fun. <laughs> and that's, so. And, and I, I feel that part of the way that that happens is by completely stripping away the necessity of any kind of narrative. Uh, you take away the need for anything specifically to make sense. You take away the need for any kind of like justification of anything. In in the narrative sense, the game is formless. Uh, right. But but so and so all of the form is provided by gameplay mechanics and objectives that are things like go get that thing over there. You know, it's a, it's as self explanatory as it ever was in the game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's it, the, the the main idea in any of the Mario games is simply like get to the get to the conclusion. Yeah, which is fine. and like, and I guess the, this these these games specifically Super Mario Odyssey and Super Mario Kart Eight Deluxe, I think, um, they it, it wound up uh, making me think, boy, I'm having a great time with these games that aren't trying to make me feel anything. And mm. when I think of like all those the AAA games of previous years, you know, I and and I I'm super super aware that this is not the case for everybody, right? Uh, that this is an extremely subjective thing. But I I have immense trouble with like you know any kind of I guess emotional engagement or investment in the narrative of a video game or its characters. Um, mm. you know the 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 idea to me of like being upset when a character in a video game dies is very silly. Uh, it's like a there's there's an old I, I I have to probably retire this now that he's like he's become some sort of like weird antagonist of everyone who's like skeptical of his being a landlord on Twitter. But um, Hannibal Burris has a has a great bit where he uh, um, he's talking about in his in one of his comedy specials he's talking about. Uh, people who are telling him that they cried uh, when the uh, when the square-headed old man died in Up. Uh, spoilers <laughs> for uh, Pixar's Up. Uh, but uh, and he's, he the the joke in it is uh, he says like they're like Hannibal, did you cry? And he said, No, I've had friends who died. I have real problems. <laughs> I didn't cry when he died. <laughs> Which I mean, I think is very funny as someone who like tears up and things like that to to like also understand like. Yeah, this is this is a nonsensical reaction. Like, <laughs> there are real problems in the world. Like, this is not a big deal. Um, 
I always think about that. And like, it is, it is like a similar thing where it's like, this is an absurdity to sort of like cry about Eris or something like that. Right. And yeah. And I guess, um, this, this is not a unique observation. I think this is something that's been discussed in, in video game writing for quite a while Mm -hmm. is, is this idea of, uh, game studios trying to make games that are like narratively on par with the best examples of cinema and that it's a that it's a very fraught proposition because yes you are always going to be constrained by the medium that you're making this in you're going to be constrained by the fact that you know you you need for some extent for the person playing the game to be interacting with it uh, their interactions mean that you have to put boundaries on the things they're doing. Those boundaries create senses of, of you know, artificially being constrained by things. Uh, there's, there's all those sorts of things which I think probably trigger maybe like, maybe I guess sort of parallel feelings to the sort of uncanny valley of, of looking at, at, you know, a robotic face that's not quite right. Or... Yeah, right. And, and like, the, you know, like to, to sort of jump in there, like, it, it is this sense of, there's this sense of, like, um, i trying to think of how to say this, like, you have a, um, like, there's a way in which the the games that are fun, right, or, like, the games that sort of, like, allow you to sort of experience the story not in the same way a movie would, but sort of, like, really engage in their medium and tell the stories as they can, Um end up accomplishing more with less as far as that emotion goes because they're not saying like, okay, here's someone I want you to care about the same way you'd care about a person. Um, whereas like, I want you to care about Mario is a totally different uh, proposition. Yeah. Um, and and even uh, like right up at the other end of the scale is the, ah, we're going to do extremely, you know, high fidelity recreations of war and and try to try to try to get you to like you know grapple with some sort of message about morality as we say like press x to execute this terrorist like all of, all of those sorts of things every time every time in a game that i i reach one of those points where it's like so so artificially constructed for the and like they you know they're waving this big red flag that says we're asking you to make a choice that says something about you as a person. <laughs> and like, I can't take it seriously. Um, do you just, do you, do you always just make the other choice? Do you like, do you kill the terrorist with, with like no compunction just because it, you're, you're irritated with the, with the question it's asking you? Do you, do you act out or do you, do you still make the choice? Oh, uh, I think, I think I have too much of a problem and especially on an initial playthrough of something with the idea that I'm supposed to be playing the game correctly. Ah, yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Yep, okay. Nope, I'm with you. Yep. Absolutely. Um, or or that if I were ever to do a playthrough of something again, that you kind of, you need the initial run to do like an A-B test against something to find out if it would have done anything differently, you know? Um, yeah, it's uh, that's like the, the nightmare scenario in Undertale where uh, where if you, if you play the game the evil way, um, it, uh, <laughs> it will lock certain... Uh, certain options for you later on and you'll just be like called a murderer no matter what happens unless you in- uninstall the game oh no <laughs> see that's no one likes to be yelled at <laughs> i suppose that's true so like i i already have um 
like as as an example, I relatively recently uh, rewatched a couple of the Avengers movies, the the Marvel ones, which are absolutely yep. they're absurd, right? Oh, like, they're nonsense movies. <clears throat> yeah, they are. They are nonsense movies. They're very absurd. Um, it is. It is interesting to look at from a kind of detached perspective how far they wound up going with those movies in the sense of saying all right we st- you know we started off with our individual character pieces and stuff and by the very end of the series it's just like here's 20 different superheroes in every frame uh <laughs> we're, we're sending paul rudd to space all the just it's 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 really all over the place and i was struck in the sort of um the the climactic battle that everybody makes fun of, you know, when uh, when oh yeah, when everyone calls them in, right? Like, yep, yep, everyone, yep. When they yeah. they call everybody in for a big birthday party, and <laughs> and um, but but the thing I was struck by, right, was even even in this a movie meticulously planned, um, they've put hundreds of millions of dollars into making this thing. And they're having these like final moments of cathartic emotion. They're having, you know, characters making their their last stands. They're having uh, Tony Stark saying his last words. All this sort of stuff. And the whole time, I was like so distracted by how visibly clearly on a green screen everyone was. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. It's. It's interesting because, like, I feel like you got to – I've told this story on the show before, but, like, uh, the scariest movie I saw as a kid uh, – it's not true. The scariest movie I saw as, like, a teen, like, one of the ones that really, like, was, like, the the last scary movie that I watched for a long time and then I started actually, like, being old enough to not be scared of them was uh, Wes Craven's Scream. And Wes Craven's Scream is not particularly scary if you watch it now. It's it's good. Like, it's it's a really interesting slasher and, like, obviously, you know – reams and reams have been written about how it changed slashers forever uh, by being self-aware, but like, uh, like, or having its characters be self-aware, excuse me. But like, I was terrified of Scream because I watched the first 10 minutes, this, the scene where Drew Barrymore's character dies. Um, and <laughs> I, I think that's Drew Barrymore's character who dies at the beginning, but like, it is. Yeah. Okay. It was terrifying to me and I, I couldn't watch anymore and I was freaked out and I watched it with my dad who is an actor, and um, he was like, oh, he's like, I'm sorry, Trevor, like, I'm sorry that, that that scared you. And I was like, yeah, like, I, it's freaking me out, like, I can't sleep. And and he was like, oh, like, he was like, you know, the funny thing is, like, none of that scares me. And he was like, the reason is because, like, whenever I look at it, I just think of, like, that's just a bunch of actors running around on a set. Like, that's all I ever see is just, like, it's a bunch of actors running around on a set. I don't get scared by horror movies anymore. Um, and it's sort of like that, I think, with CGI movies now that we've all we all know how it's done. It's just much more like obvious to think about, like, oh, that's that's um, <laughs> that's Paul Rudd like waving his arms and going, "I'll, f- I'll never forget you, Tony." Like in front of a green screen with like bulbs attached to him. It's not really Ant Man. It's like well, even so, e- even yeah. the scenes where like um, there's there's the entire time travel plot in that movie, and they all have their mm-hmm. little their little time travel suits and everything. And I, wa- I remember seeing some little snippet of like Kevin Feige or whoever talking about like how great all the special effects were. And they were saying, oh, well, we hadn't actually finalized the design for like the time travel suits and stuff yet. <clears throat> so, you know, we just uh, we stuck a few things on people 
And then we were able to just like <laughs> put put all the suits on them in post and put the helmets on them in post. And like I think that's the same thing with um with Iron Man's helmet. Where like maybe oh, okay. maybe from the first movie after the first movie, Robert Downey Jr. said, Fuck that, I'm not clamping that thing onto my head anymore. And they said, No problem, Mr. Downey Jr. Um, <laughs> we will just we'll just stick it on your head afterwards. And like and, No problem, Mr. Downey Jr. <laughs> and um and so like again, I'm watching this thing where and and they're like, oh, it's amazing because you know we we could just put it all on afterwards, and you can't even tell. And it's like, buddy, you can absolutely tell. There's <laughs> yeah, just but just that. I'm sorry, Fred. You, this, yes. this is not going as well as you think it is. Just that slightly telltale, you know, being ever ever so minutely out of sync with the the person that it's kind of drawn onto, and it all pulls you out of it. And so, if I'm having enough trouble with that in like movies that someone spent hundreds of millions of dollars on and have real actors on the screen, then I also You're tend, have some trouble. Yeah. Then I, then I tend to have, uh, difficulties with like, you know, not, not that I have played it, but the last of us part two type games, um, where it's all very, 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 very serious, uh, personal psychological drama kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think I just have a big mental block to that in games. And um, yeah, I just I I found myself enjoying uh, Super Mario Odyssey so much, purely on the basis of this game is not trying to make me feel any of those things specifically, and I think that that yeah. really opens itself up to make you feel other things in a positive way. That's an interesting point. I think you're right. Like I think it's um, yeah, like it it is it is a matter of. It, I'm trying to think of like because you're absolutely correct. Like it's a matter of not focusing so much on the message, but focusing on the form. Like giving itself over to the medium that it is. To to put it a different way, and like sort of a way that maybe makes sense in terms of like what we were talking about before. Like it is it is a way to to kind of like focus on like okay, how does this how does this thing work? Um, as a video game, not how do I make a, a a really important movie out of this? Yeah, what what would be and you know, God forbid, thinking primarily about the experience of the person who is actually interacting with the thing that you're creating. <laughs> right. What would be the most fun for this person to do? And and I think like that's. In, in much the same way that I think a lot of people are very critical of game studios that seem to invest uh, a very large amount of their resources into just creating like, you know, photorealistic, incredibly high fidelity uh, renderings of, of humans and human faces and environments and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I don't know if maybe there's this idea that by creating environments in that sort of fidelity that you are just imbuing them with with realism or with humanity or with something that people can connect to but and, and obviously it's just as much of a i think that those things are just as much of a an attempt to make a technical achievement as anything sure, else of course, um, absolutely which which is i mean that's a that's final fantasy i don't know if you remember this movie but final fantasy the spirits within like that's yeah. what i always think of when when that happens like a movie that was just like deeply uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, yeah. Polar Express. 
Uh, yeah. Oh God. Any, any of those things, which is just like uh, Robert Robert Zemeckis doing some weird shit <laughs> because he's like, no, this is kind of what I'm into, and like. I, I think that there are people where you can kind of you can respect that, like the J- James Cameron doing a thousand avatars and stuff. Um, but I, I hope they come out soon. One day, one day we'll get to go back to Pandora. <laughs> or uh, it's funny, my my daughter is uh, getting into because uh, it's just on Netflix. Um, she's getting into Avatar the show uh, that that. Um, animated television show avatar the last airbender and the legend of korra um and my my wife asked her uh is this the avatar of like the ride we went on they went to disney together with a friend of hers uh, a friend of tilly's and her mom and she was like is this the the avatar with like the blue people that i was i was like no no this is a different avatar (laughs) this is this is even this is even more confusing for you right now yes we've got plenty of avatars to go around um yeah so so I guess um I don't know like I, I was I was thinking about this with like um the the Top Gun sequel uh that Tom Cruise is making or has made I think they keep pushing back the release because he'd mm. really like you to go and see it in a real cinema but there might be some other stuff affecting that um and like this is a thing where I have no interest in like Top Gun the movie Personally, it's, it's fine. It is what it is. Um, but I also know that Tom Cruise is a big time psycho about wanting to like pioneer new ways of shooting things, like new ways yes, of shooting aerial 100% combat. 100% he is, yes. And all that sort of stuff in the same way that like, um, in the same way that, you know, this is obviously completely removing uh, anything to do with how anybody feels about like Tom Cruise as a person or his uh, his religious activities, any of that sort of stuff, removing any of that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> I I personally think you kind of you kind of have to have some respect for somebody who is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, could probably be doing whatever the fuck he likes, uh, but says, "Well, I guess I'm going to have to learn to fly a helicopter in order to make shooting this helicopter chase sequence more realistic." Uh, we'll we'll build a special rig in which we like strap a whole bunch of cameras to the outside of this thing so you can see me while I'm flying the helicopter. Because if I was just on a green screen, you'd know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like his it's like his thing, and people have mentioned this, like how uh, how you will end up like he'll just end up killing himself one day because he's like, oh, I can't wait to go like shoot my, shoot a film in space, but actually be in space while that happens. Well, I've, like you look at those shots from some of the Mission Impossible movies where he's like on some ridiculously Climbing the Burj Khalifa or whatever. Yeah. Well, the, the one like, yeah, you could have a, you know, you could have a harness on him or whatever. You'd have safety lines and that sort of stuff for that. Uh, the ones that get me are the shots where he is riding like a very, very high powered racing motorcycle, uh, <laughs> extremely fast. And he's got no helmet on so that you can see that it's him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm always like, it wouldn't take much. It wouldn't take much of a fuck up there to have no more Tom Cruise. Well, but how um, are they going to know it's me? <laughs> but but like to me, I guess those are those are sort of like positive examples of that idea of saying I'm going to take the resources that are available to me and the ability that I have to make whatever I want. Uh, mm-hmm. in order to try and like push some of the boundaries of what can be shot and how we can shoot it and that kind of thing. 
Um, and so in the same sort of way with things like The Last of Us, those sorts of games, I understand, I understand, uh, you know, putting a lot of your effort into that for the purpose of what you see as if, you know, if we, we can, we can kind of take the level of fidelity of reproduction of a realistic looking world to new heights and all that kind of thing. Um, that said, for, for me personally, it doesn't necessarily always translate to an experience where I'm I'm feeling something particularly effective in playing the game. There's certainly moments right. where you you know you look at things and you go, "Wow, <laughs> great job!" Yeah, <laughs> I guess, but I guess like awe is different than like than affect, right? Like like there's a there's a way that I guess like this is something that I've been trying to grapple with too. It, it especially comes out in AAA games, like the way that a game like say Mario Odyssey can make you feel something. Um, even if there's like fewer times when you're like, whoa, that looks so like, that's so different than anything I've ever seen in games. Um, but it just like, it accomplishes something different. Like, it, I guess by way of its, it's, again, by way of like its affect, by the way, by way of it, like actually attempting something new. Um, whereas like, I guess, I guess what it boils down to is like technical achievements are not anything new. Technical achievements are in fact, like just what we've been trying to do the whole time. Yeah, and and I guess like you could even sort of uh take a step out on that one and say the switch itself like things like the Wii before it, you know. Mm. The the switch itself is a testament to the same type of thinking, which is we are less concerned by the ability to have, you know, absolutely bone-crushing processing power or whatever, <laughs> than we are to make something that is fun to interact with in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm, uh, right. So they've, you know, they've given you something that is simultaneously a home console uh, and portable. They've given you something that even like this is a, <clears throat> this was kind of a, an interesting thing to me on, on like getting the thing out for the first time. I think it hadn't really clicked with me. The idea that like I, I knew that you could take off the the joy cons and use them mm-hmm. as as little controllers and stuff like that but it kind of hadn't clicked with me how much of a how much of a given it is for consoles now that like you buy a console and then you also need to immediately pay like $70 if you would like to have a second person play something on the console right that's if you can find a game that you can play that has two players. Yeah, right? that's that's if you can find a game that two people in the same house can play with each other. Uh, but the fact that you know we could just get this thing out and both of my kids could be playing Mario Kart with each other straight away. It's like it is a consideration that went into the production of the of the console. So I wonder. This is something that I I didn't even think that this episode would go this way, which is like you know very rewarding for me because this is something that I've been trying to focus on on what I'm thinking of and, and no one else in the entire world is thinking of this season of no cartridge. Um, uh, like one of the things that I find myself thinking about a lot, it, it actually comes out with Marvel movies is this is the way people try and understand um, aesthetics and, and art and things like that. Like what counts, right? Cause like a lot of, a lot of what counts for people of course is this like, this sense of, well, it meant something to me or like, I felt like it was cool or I enjoyed it. So it's artistic. Right. Um, and what I'm kind of fascinated by is like, well, so like that is some people's perception of art, 
but how would they defend that perception, right? Like, how do you, how do you sort of like quantify what you see as art? Um, and so I think like my question for you here is, you know, like we can talk about the, the Avengers movie and how it sort of ends up being like fun to watch, but ultimately like, you know, just a, 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 a series of referential shots that uh, reward. I saw someone say this uh, before, but like reward you for watching the rest of the movies, which I think was a good way of uh, describing how those movies work. I, th- I think um, I think by the end of the series, you you couldn't watch the last couple of movies without having seen a bunch of them, or it would just be indecipherable to you. Right. Yeah. So like you know that compared to like every sort of like fans' critique of Scorsese after um, he critiqued the the. the the films themselves saying like, Oh, this guy just does mob movies. Right. Um, so like, how do you, how do you get to a point like that? Like, how do you sort of see Scorsese stuff as mob movies, but these movies as, as something outside of a monolith um, and, and vice versa. Why do I see Scorsese's movies as something outside of a monolith, but not, uh, not the Marvel movies. And, you know, one of the things that I think ultimately it comes down to, to get back to sort of what you were talking about was, is this idea that, I don't know, like different things matter to different people. Uh, this, this seems like seems like an utterly banal thing to say, but I think it's true um, or like important anyway. Uh, what you're talking about when you're talking about like, you know, this is a consideration that Nintendo made. This is a consideration that uh, that was made with the Switch. You know, like to you at this point in your life and to me at this point in my life too, I well, you're not alone. That consideration, right, can both of my kids play this is more important to me than can this have a sort of like graphical fidelity. Yeah. Um, but ultimately it's a personal consideration. So I, I wonder like, how do you, and then here's where the question comes in. How do you think, how do you think this all enters into a consideration of art? Like can, can like, does a game have to be fun to be artistically compelling? Does a game, can a game just focusing on, uh, graphics be a compelling endeavor? Like what, what about, what about like, what about gaming actually produces a kind of um, artistic approach and what is superfluous? I think um, you, you did just make me think while, while you were formulating that question about... I'm glad um, I made you think. Some, someone, <laughs> everyone was just saying, you know, I hope no one ever says this again, but uh, okay, cool. Uh, do, do you remember, did you play that, uh, it was like a browser-based game of like a of paperclip manufacturing. <laughs> ah, yes, I did. It's a fun game. Yeah, I played that a little while ago and I, I spent the first, you know, little bit going, oh, I guess I'm just making some paperclips. Click, 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 click. <laughs> and then, you know, and then it sort of turned into something else and then it started to unfold and expand and turn into some other things and give these hints of something very dark happening. And it had its own narrative that kind of played out behind purely just just the form and function of it as its own little object but uh but i mean that's a great example of something where there is essentially no graphical consideration you know there is no consideration yeah, yeah. of it <clears throat> it's, it's basically been stripped of aesthetics uh and it still manages to achieve something quite cool at the other end of the scale for me personally a lot of those things like the last of us type games that are obsessed with graphical fidelity tend to leave me quite cold and then with, I mean, with things like, um, I guess I've, I've long been a defender of the position that um, 
Chuck Klosterman put forward in his book, uh, what is it, Fargo Rock City? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you have ever ever read it. I have heard of it. I've not read it, no. So, so the central thesis of this book, right, is that um, Chuck Klosterman growing up in uh, like rural North Dakota uh, in the 80s, the first sort of the first musical form that really made him feel like he had something that was his own thing, uh, something that gave him an idea of you know something something cool happening somewhere else out in the world was like hair metal, right? Okay, yeah. and and but as the decades went on, he said it's kind of funny because there's so many things that you can look at that after their heyday has come and gone, they get this critical reappraisal. And people, you know, disco, all sorts of things that people will look at and say, oh, this was reviled by a large section of the populace at the time. Um, but, you know, obviously now we can, we can look at things like Niles Roger and Sheik and say, oh, it was this foundation that informed so many other things, like old French touch and Daft Punk and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, and also, I mean, even, even the sense of like, you know, I've, I've seen disco, disco defended as like a, a, an art reviled because it was like, not a white person's art, right? Like, like yeah. the the idea that it was like largely a, a the, the purview of people of color, um, Stole, yeah, stolen I, I, by notorious white Australians, the Bee Gees. <laughs> they are notorious. We won't let them on our shores anymore. Um, I, I they probably live here. That's but true. but so um, so his yeah. point his point is that hair metal was kind of the one thing that never received a a warm critical reappraisal people have always just kind of mocked it as as just being without value you know right and I so that's where you're going with this yeah yeah and the and i guess basically the kind of central thesis of his book is that if art has value to you it is valuable the hmm. you know that it it is inherently value valuable because in his case with hair metal it was something that played this prominent role in like a formative part of his life <clears throat> it it showed him that there were other forms of artistic expression out in the world all that kind of thing so to a certain extent if you like to a certain extent it is impossible to argue with the concept of somebody saying the marvel movies have artistic merit to me i personally like Personally, my my appreciation for like the Marvel movies and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and stuff is more one of like project management and logistics. <laughs> okay, fair when, enough. If if you start to think about and like you know, not not that we came here to talk about comic book movies, but if you look at say the the DC movies by contrast, right? They are all mm. over the place. They they clearly sort of started with one thing realized maybe maybe we don't want to do like (laughs) grim dark Zack snyder shit for our our massive franchise and everything uh they pivoted around to a bunch of different stuff they've kind of kind of been all over the shop whereas i i I think the the most impressive thing about the marvel movies is that across the span of 10 years and 20 something movies they made a series of movies that all hold like uh you know internal visually consistent styling uh they all feel like they're taking place in the same universe they have all of these relationships between uh, characters and storylines between all of them all things that would have taken years of planning and execution and all that sort of stuff but 
all of that would have had to come at the expense of suppressing artistic individuality of some of the people involved. Oh, 100%. Like, you know, you're talking about your, your Taika Waititi's and like, uh, you know, the very, the various big deal directors, they got to do these things. Yeah. And, and I, I see that as simultaneously, uh, I guess, I don't know, uh, an achievement and an impediment. The fact that they have, because, mm. because obviously, if you watch the movie that Taika Waititi directed, you still see parts of his like humor, like you see in in what we do in the shadows, expressed in that movie, but it's been synthesized into this into this corporate form. You know, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. the, and the same for for the other movies that are that are shot by, you know, lots of other filmmakers of note. That they. But it's funny that ev- you say corporate everything... there, which of course has like two meanings here, like both the corporate in terms of the Marvel corporate format, but also the corporate is in like the fact that it is incorporated and like and and so uniform. I, I guess I guess for me it is. And and this is this is what I what my take always was on the Martin Scorsese Marvel thing was that um I mean number one how can you disagree with someone saying uh, it's not really for me <laughs> yeah. like, I, which ultimately is what Martin Scorsese is saying like it, it, absolutely like the whole time he seem was like just something like I like <laughs> he was just like hey it's not my bag um. <laughs> You know, he was like, oh, it's like going on a roller coaster at a theme park. It's not for me. And I don't like roller coasters, so I get them. And, um, and like, <laughs> the, the, the thing, obviously, that he was kind of rallying against was exactly that thing of saying, let's take all of these interesting actors and directors and screenwriters and everything, but subsume a whole lot of that artistic expression into this homogenous vision across the board, which, like I said in and of itself, is still an impressive achievement. It's an impressive achievement of organization, of planning, of logistics. But all of those things are done to serve like a business outcome. Right, right, yeah. And you do see people uh, posting, you know, those the screenshots that look like an old Windows XP wallpaper saying, look at the cinematography in this 100% CGI shot. Um, And... And that's fine because, yes, those directors and various people have managed to express moments of, like, levity or humor or, or something memorable with a character or, or scenes or art direction or costumes or whatever that are very cool unto themselves. But all of those artistic expressions are secondary to a corporate goal. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. they yeah. they have all happened, I guess, like in spite of that, as opposed to specifically because of it. So, I guess, yeah. So, like one thing to synthesize what you're saying with 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 games, and then one final question for you, um, and then I'll, I'll let you go because we I think we've been here about an hour. I'm, I'm not I don't have the I don't have the thing up, but I know we're at the end of. I I I, I laughed and I'll share it with the audience. You showed me that you had designated a spot in your calendar for podcast recording, which uh, <laughs> just wonderful. Like just like, you're living the dream, honestly. In my work uh, work calendar, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I that's well, people at work already know about my podcast, which is. Uh, that's, troubling that's the nightmare right there yeah that is the nightmare fortunately they all like it the people who have found it but uh, hopefully no one else finds it um 
I will say, I don't know if I said this on the show yet, but uh, my my daughter does um, karate, and uh, her uh, her one sensei is very very like he's obsessed with my family's well, specifically my father's podcast, which is um, the the Liars Club Oddcast. It's it's very good, but it's about it's about writing. Um, and I didn't tell him that I had one, and he found out. Um, <laughs> and, and he 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 loved it. But he was talking to uh, Kristen about it, my wife, and said, "You are such a good wife to let your husband have like all these bizarre interests. Like you must be so patient." Like, all right, <laughs> you don't have to do all me right. like that, man. Come on, come on, dude. Like, um, but uh, but like, I, yeah, so, like I, for the record, I I started a podcast so my wife didn't have to listen to my bullshit anymore. <laughs> That's exactly right. There's no reason any any wife should have to listen to uh, either of us, uh, and and the fact that we're saving two of them from it makes us heroes. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, I, I know I know you're heading towards the end of it. So I wanted to. So one thing, one thing to synthesize, I would say, like you know, your point about about corporate um, or art coming through outside of corporate um, uh, vision. And, and again, like not just corporate in terms of like the corporation, but corporate in terms of, wow, this was made like in an incorporated way. Um, I think like what's what's fascinating about that is thinking about, um, you know, thinking about the way that video games effectively are required to take on a sort of corporate style within graphics, right? Like the idea that every game that is AAA has to be pushing the boundaries of graphics in such a way that they do end up looking fairly similar if they are on a big enough scale for a big enough budget oh I remember um, because, remember all those memes like however many years ago where it was uh like just screenshot after screenshot of games like gears of war and all those sorts of things and it was like <laughs> oh you know amazing amazing future of graphics and it's just like 20 different screens of like a gray blasted landscape with a space marine on it. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And like, yeah, I mean, at any given point, like whatever graphics are supposed to look like in a good game, these games will do that because of course they're, they're massively expensive projects that have to, they have to make money or else like someone is in big, big trouble. Um, and so they all kind of trend, tend towards a similarity. Right. Um, but I think, like, I, you know, that might be one of those things where you have a, um, like, one of those things where you have people working through um, uh, impediments and maybe incidentally or in spite of those impediments making art. Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing that you put put in there. So it's, it's a way I haven't really thought about graphics. So thanks for that. Well, I, um, I think, oh, I, think I, I was going to say on the flip side of that. Obviously, given all of the things that I just said about Marvel, obviously, Nintendo is a highly corporate enterprise. Um, it is a thing with a, with a very, very defined branding and stable of characters, as I referred to earlier. I, oh, absolutely. I, I am very interested in the fact that like a lot of their releases seem to be remakes and remasters of existing games. Um, so obviously, they, they, they are really playing in the garden of established properties and brands and stuff, you know. And, Dangerous garden. Yeah. Uh, and, and even within something like a Mario game, um, obviously there is an extremely predefined way of, this is how Mario looks. This is how Goombas mm -hmm. look. You know, because you've been looking at them for 30 years. 
Um, and like, right. you know, a, a sort of a slow evolution of those things. But at the same time, because there is that divorce from anything in the game really needing to make any kind of sense, it enables all of this different kind of creativity. And because there is also not any kind of slavish devotion to incredibly like high fidelity reproduction of environments or anything like that, it means mm. that you can go, hey, what if now you went to a world and everything's made of lunch? <laughs> I love, that's my favorite. I love that world. That's yeah. so good. Yeah, and and like just just the way that everything can be a focus on how different things in different environments interact with each other. What it's like when you put a, your hat on a little fireball and you're swimming around in the, in the hot soup. Uh, and then you've got to jump from there onto a little hot tomato thing. And then, like, I, I think, I think that, um, that having the really predefined style of your core elements in that way for something like a Mario game obviously gives them the freedom outside of that to say, just do whatever. Do whatever. Yeah, make it yeah. crazy. Make it really fun. Um, make it, above all else, probably, make it interesting. Uh, maybe make it something people who play these games haven't seen before. And Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing that really struck me with Odyssey specifically and, the, and Cappy and the, you know, the, the entire mechanic of being able to... Um, you know, inhabit other creatures is that once you're doing that, you are also bound by th the movement of that particular thing, that creature. You can only walk yeah. and jump and stuff the way that that one can. And I've, I found it really, I found it very interesting in that it's a game that is, is very invested in and very rewarding of just exploration and trying things out. Um, just yeah you know it's very kind of uh you you put your like and and at the same time those those things all those little puzzles that are like okay now you've got your hat on a zipper what does a zipper do oh i gotta go up and around here and <laughs> and now this big thing's fallen away and it's a platform that i can walk on none yeah. of these things require the game to say to you this is what's happening now there is there is like right. yeah I'm I'm sort of stunned as a person who like professionally designs interactions for people. Um, I'm I'm sort of stunned by that element of it in that all the way through the game in all the different worlds you are constantly being presented with new and different ways of interacting with either some part of the environment or some other character in the environment. Um, but there's almost no parts of it where it's signposts or handholds how that's actually meant to work. Yeah, absolutely. No, 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 you're you're totally correct. Like it is it is a a wholly um intuitive game. Yeah, yeah, Ev everything is just uh exploration and learning and like just you know, I I guess like the the sort of subconscious thought I kept having over and over again was, "Oh, I wonder if this will work." And then it does. <laughs> So let me ask you this, like, uh, so one of the, you're reminding me a lot of um, this, uh, this article that I referenced a million times, um, but it's, it's one of my favorites and it's by, it's by my advisor, um, you know, the full disclosure, it is by my advisor uh, mm -hmm. from my PhD, my dissertation advisor, uh, Nicholas Brown, but he writes this great article that has an ultra clunky title um, that only an academic would use, which is uh, the, uh, what is it? The... Uh, 
the work of art in its uh, the work of art in its real subsumption under capital. Um, not not catchy. This is a joke on a Walter Benjamin article. Um, but the 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 joke is cool because, or the joke is not cool. The 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 article's cool because it basically looks at Terminator Two um, as as an exemplar and says, and Avatar actually as well, which is kind of funny. But uh, it says, hey, like Terminator Two is interesting because Terminator Two does everything it needs to do to be a good action movie, and then anything else is is gravy. James Cameron can do whatever he wants outside of that once he once he like gets the 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 action movie staples in there he can do whatever he wants um and that's kind of true or at least it's an interesting way to think about genre films and the way you're talking about video games here reminds me of that where like mario gets this like this sense of okay like um mario does this like here are the rules of this particular mario it's the normal stuff and then also these extra things and now after that's out of the way after we've given you the basic uh, goal and the basic restrictions, we can kind of do whatever we want. You know, there's a there's a way in which like that's the same kind of thing, right? Like you you get to you get to do the art and you get to produce something interesting or neat or whatever um, once the conditions once the once the restrictions are are met. Um, and so I wonder, with that in mind, like, do you think do you think that exploration and fun for you? I'll 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 even form it in the way that you've you've described aesthetics, which is as this sort of like um, as this sort of like a personal uh, choice, which is fine. It totally makes sense to me. Um, is for you is the is the unavoidable condition of video games exploration and fun? Uh to to me well not not necessarily in the sense that like i you know i enjoy a game like street fighter 4 or 5 or any of any of that series of games is there but, no exploration in that for you like i mean is it does like do the the move sets and stuff count yeah although i would suggest that it shares a commonality with what we're talking about in this mario game which is mm. that the, the the base mechanics of Mario's movement are the same as they have been since uh, Mario 64, right? Um, you have the same uh, you have the same like triple jump, you have the same long jump where you hit crouch beforehand, um, you have the same backflip where you right. crouch and jump, that sort of stuff, uh, sliding down walls, all that sort of thing. The majority of, of his movement and the things you can do with him, uh, just that play style, the, the mechanics of how his character interacts with the environment have essentially stayed the same since Mario 64. Like you said, you layer a few extra things on there. You got, you got Cappy, you know, you can, um, you can roll now in the new game, which is fun. Rolling down a hill. Yeah, rolling's really fun. Yep, some of that sort of stuff. Um, even even layering the little bit onto the end of like the triple jump where you can there's there's the jump where you can throw Cappy and then jump off of him and now you can yeah. add that on to the end of a triple jump. I never got the hang of that, but I love it. I know. It's a, well and and that's but that's I guess a whole other conversation about like scalability of, uh, yeah, of right. interactions and that sort of stuff. But it is the same thing, which is we already have this very, very, very firmly established, several decades old 
um, mechanic of movement for this character and we build some extra stuff on the outside of that. So you're starting from a base position of familiarity um, and already sort of knowing how to interact with the game on a fundamental level and that's what the Street Fighter series of games is to me too, which mm, is... Yeah. You, I can you, understand that. Yeah, you already know how to do your, your quarter circles and your half circles and your 360s and the majority of people have, you know, every, everybody's movesets are, for the most part, all based on the same dozen things. You know, it's about how they're put together and about what you can do as you get into that scalability of stringing together combos and all that sort of thing. I think, uh, I think for me... Some of the things that I, I I think maybe the commonality of some of the games that we've been talking about, like uh, Tony Hawk, like Mario Odyssey, like um, yeah, like like Street Fighter, like a bunch of those things, is that really core, very 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 solid uh, playability mechanic, and then how the game builds on that as mm. it goes. And I think those are things, you know, and you could even come back to things like um, the, the Batman Arkham games and Spider-Man and stuff, where, again, they establish a very core mechanic and then they spend the rest of the game layering onto that to give you the ability to do more complex things, to give you different types of freedom within the game. Yeah, basically a balance between, um, a balance between something that I'm trying to think of how to say what you just said in a good, in like a, a, a precise way, like a, a kind of predictability, uh, but balanced so that it does not end up being um, uh, repetitive. Like a, a sort of, a, that that would be the difference, right? Like that's the thing you have to work towards. Uh, repeatable, but not not repetitive. Yeah, and I guess, um, I guess maybe as well uh, the idea of like foundational mechanics. That the rest mm. of the game is is built on, uh, because like we we're saying about Mario, you know, you already know how Mario works. We give you an extra thing or two, set you on your way, and then everything from that point on is just see what happens when you do something. And yeah, there, exactly. And there are just so many parts of that game that only happen in the moment that they're happening. It's not like uh, you know, when when you think back to much older games. Uh, it would be more like as as the levels progress in a game, they would introduce like a new type of enemy who does something different to the other ones, and then that enemy is also in every level from now on. Uh, right, it's, exactly. It's yeah. it's not like and that. often it's, in every game now on <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, whereas in in this case, it's often here is here is just this little little thing that we've given you, little mechanic, uh, and it's just here for now. And that's it. It's mm -hmm. it's not becoming some foundational part of the game. It's just another little experiment thrown all the way through yeah. the thing. And I guess um, you know, my sort of my takeaway from this whole thing was rather than games that place a huge emphasis on uh narrative, particularly trying to replicate like a cinematic form, um, I often feel that those games are putting everything that they have into the service of trying to make me feel specific emotions at specific junctures of the game, uh, often through what I think of as like a like an arbitrary choice that you need to make or something that is is forcing you to pick a binary in some like pretty shallow definition of morality. And 
a lot of that sort of stuff just really makes me feel like I'm going through the paces. And I feel like, you know, you often feel like, oh, I'm not feeling the thing I'm supposed to be feeling at the moment as I'm playing this. Whereas, right. uh, yeah, what I found with Mario Odyssey was this interesting kind of inversion of that, which is by completely stripping away the narrative and the need to force the game forward on any type of like relevant narrative beats or anything like that. Um, it leaves you open to just feeling what you feel through the course of playing the game. And something that I consciously felt playing this game was like, oh, this game is joyful to play. And it wasn't through a game trying to narratively say to me, ah, as a result of this story beat, you should be experiencing joy at this time. <laughs> you yourself have been like, I, I think like what you're saying is that you yourself were allowed to, you know, decide when you were feeling joyful and when you were feeling like sad and when you were feeling happy. Yeah. And mostly of course, joyful, but you, you, you were allowed to sort of like come to that conclusion on your own. Oh, or, or just being like bemused or baffled or entertained by something, you know, just, just through either something being, surprising not because it was narratively intending to surprise or shock me or anything but just because it was something really weird that they chose to put in the game and i could yeah. just go huh <laughs> i did not expect <laughs> to see that be because i didn't have any clearly formulated expectations around anything i was going to see in that game that's a great point no it makes a lot of sense well andrew i i need to let you go but uh uh um that was lovely. That was a fantastic. I didn't expect us to get into aesthetics, and I, I did certainly did not expect it to be as like as thoroughgoing and compelling as that. Uh, not because of you, but because of our topic. But I suppose that is the risk we take. Uh, <laughs> you know, un, uh, underestimating a wonderful uh, little fun game. So wonderful little uh, a little uh, a wonderful Japanese conception of a tiny Italian man. Uh, <laughs> He's so Italian. He's, he's a plumber. He's from Brooklyn. I have to um, say, I have to say, um, I absolutely made my wife very angry when uh, I was I was playing the Switch in bed, and uh, ooh, and yeah. I was uh, like, she's trying to go to sleep, and I am giggling and trying to get her to look at Mario's new clown outfit. <laughs> she was look what I bought. She was not into it. You know. That's another that's another question about <laughs> wives and, uh, you know, uh, well, we'll have to have a wife on to uh, to get this all hashed out. Um, once I meet one uh, who isn't mine, I'll let you know. Yes. Uh, well, wonderful. Where can people find your work? Uh, I think a lot of people know, but why not? Why don't we tell them anyway? Oh, you can check out the world's number one podcast about strange stories from nature and what the villainous people of the Netherlands are up to, uh, Bunta Vista. <laughs> you can check it out at uh, buntavista.com, B-O-O-N-T-A. And yeah, find me on Twitter if you like, at Illybotion. It generally takes people about five years to realize that it's a spoonerization of Billy Ocean. It, it took me about five years, yes. <laughs> that's, um, that's the average... It, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. Ellie Potion. Got it. Um, you know, one of the things I think is um, is uh, best about Bunta Vista is that it is a a show, as you say, that vilifies the the Dutch. And, and yet 
<laughs> I I I myself am twenty five percent Dutch and uh, and still like it. And we don't hold it against you, you know. Uh, well, that's not so. I don't know if that's true. I've, I've been told <laughs> you don't hold me, but I've noticed that Lucy has not been faving my tweets. Um, I have noticed that Ben and Theo have uh, been very quiet. You've kept up a good front, but uh, I'm not sure about the rest. Drew the short straw. <laughs> well, um, uh, Andrew, come on again very soon. Uh, let's not make it so long next time. Maybe we can. Uh, maybe when you uh, next play uh, a fun game on on Switch. Actually, that would be great. Next time you you play a, another game on Switch, let me know, and we will have you on for a Patreon episode. Absolutely. Um, uh, well, I didn't even that, talk about. Uh, I had a I had a go of Untitled Goose Game. Uh, oh well, okay. Now let's. After we're done, just send me when you're available, and we'll do the Patreon. That's right. <laughs> Katamari Damacy re-roll. I was so happy oh, that God. there was, there was yes. finally a, a, a Katamari game I could play. Oh, you never played Katamari before that? Oh, oh no, no, no. I, I, I did. It's just that I haven't been able to play it on anything, because they never, oh, they never oh, did, like... Oh, I understand. There's, you know, there's a version you can get on the iPad, and it sucks, and... It's not... Yeah, that's not what you want. That's right. Just one of those yeah. weird games that they never... They never like never remastered really or never ported it to anything. Same for uh, I did get uh, Crystal Crisis for Switch, which somebody apparently got sick of them waiting to make like a Gem Fighters port uh, <laughs> and just made made a new game that is the same as the classic Puzzle Fighter type scenario. Well, yeah. That, no, okay, so we have a ton to talk about. This is good. Excellent. Um, well, thank you for coming on. This was really a, a treat, and um, yeah, I hope to hope to do that soon. And and uh, and you know, keep having fun with games, buddy. Imagine having fun with games again. So- I can't imagine it. I refuse to imagine it. <laughs> it's a whole terrifying. new world. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, buddy. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash nocartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.